Hi folks, this is Rue and Dave and welcome to So Many Books, So Little Time. Today we continue with Ellen Montgomery's entrancing story of Anne of Green Gables with chapter 36, The Glory and the Dream. Cue the music. So, how are you going, Rue? hot. It's March and it's hot. It's way too hot. It's meant to start cooling down now. A March. <sighs> anyway, so we're, we're struggling with, with, with weather-related things. What's new? At so many books, so little time. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be an episode if we didn't talk about the weather in some no, capacity. No. Uh, we, we need someone to do a tally of how many times we do this. <laughs> Maybe don't. Maybe don't. Oh, as I edit these episodes, I make mental tallies of every time we tend to repeat ourselves. Oh, that happens. Or, or any time I say, I've probably said this before, <laughs> but... <laughs> I think we've mentioned this before. I think we've covered this before. Um, we need to write down what we cover, but we don't. It's okay. It's all off the cuff, off, off the top of our minds. You know, we're just Add like... It. We're just like thinking of things that are churning around in there and projecting them out into the world because that's what we're all about. No. But yes, but no. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Yes. So over the next few uh, weeks, things are um, hopefully going to cool down, and we will feel much less like steamed chicken, steamed hams. I feel like steamed something. Like just, it's too hot. Now, last time Anne went to Queens. She went to Queens, and then she was also getting incredibly homesick over the winter break. We we got to spend some um, elongated time with Josie Pye, and I finally saw what Rue uh, was talking about. That she's an incorrigible, nasty person. You were about to say another word. I saw it in your lips, but you stopped yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Insert your your expression of choice to describe an incredibly unpleasant person who is harsh and horrible. There, and which sure. is a shame because I like pie. Well, pie is different to pie. True, true. There's no why. Pie has a warm and and comforting filling, whereas Josie <laughs> has a stone cold heart. Now, now, you don't know what's in her heart. That's true. And you know, actually, that's a really important point. We never know what's truly in someone else's heart. We can only gauge it by actions and behaviors and words towards each other, which is, of course, limited. The, the problem comes when you try and criticize someone based on their actions and someone responds with, oh, you don't know what's in their heart. And you're like, well, I know what they did based on their actions. Yeah, I know what's out of their heart right now, and it's not great. So, yes, it's true. It's true. But, but this, uh, when the glory and the dream, I'm assuming we get to see if Anne, A, won the medal she was going after, meaning she's top of the class, and B, if she maybe was able to get that scholarship. Well, she's much more focused on the scholarship than anything else. Because, as she said, oh, my goodness, imagine how proud Matthew would feel if not only did I, you know, come and be a teacher at Queen's, but if I got into an actual university? Yeah, so for her, it's it's a case of her, she didn't realize she had that ambition. That's what mm. we found out like last time, mm. which is this idea of, for Anne, ambition is more, oh, I could actually think, I, 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 it's not that I've achieved this goal and I will think further. It's more a case of, oh, I was only thinking so far, but hey, that's an opportunity I hadn't even considered. And then it grows and her v- vision grows. And it's not that it... Um, uh, we liked the way that Anne approached ambition because it wasn't a case of, co- it wasn't competition. Like the way she works with Gilbert in that competition, that vying, is only to, to stimulate. But even that's gone away now and that's more, uh, she now just wants to do well for the purpose of doing well and she challenges herself. Yeah, it was reflected in the last the end of the last chapter where the girls are all, well, the other girls are fretting about their exams and Anne pretty much just said, look, I've prepared, so whatever happens, happens. And I'm just going to enjoy how spring is here and everything outside I love. And the other girls kind of stared at her for a moment and said, so, back to worrying. Well, it's either worrying (laughs) or clothes. So, I mean, I I don't... um, So there is an expression that I severely dislike. Severely dislike. But it's it's, it's an, an expression often used 
And it's, an, it's a, almost, I don't know if it's a trope, this, this idea of this girl is not like the other girls. You know, that kind of, Anne is not like the other girls. Well, she isn't like the other girls. Okay. Like, but, but, I guess I'm unfamiliar with. Um, it's an expression that's sometimes used to say, well, all those other people are, you know, all those other girls are so superficial and da da da, but oh. you're so deep and you think so. Like, it, that comparison is unnecessary. The author, I appreciate why she's done it. She is trying to highlight Anne's, who Anne is. Well, I saw it as a growth in her character. Yep. But the way it was done, it was by because you're limited when you're describing things, when you're writing things. Sometimes, I mean, it would, yeah. So she, the way she was doing it was kind of contrasting, saying Anne has matured beyond her peers. That's what she's trying to. This is how I'm interpreting it. So I interpret it as Anne has grown beyond her peers. Her peers are still fretting about wealth and um, appearances and things like that. Well, and kind of got over that fixation much earlier on. She appreciates, yes, financially would be practical, comfort would be great, but ambition is more important. And then even with ambition, ambition within I'm doing the best that I can do and I have a goal and I'll work towards it, but I'm not, I, I can't control the processes around the, this happening. So she she is more mature compared to her peers. I think it's also because Ruby did say, well, you don't have to worry, Anne. You're going to be top near the top of the class at the very least. And maybe maybe it's also because she's gained the confidence. Well, it's, it's part of that. She goes, I've worked as hard as I can. Yep. Yes. That, that's part of it. And, and whether the... I think the idea is there's this contrast between... Okay, I'm not going to counterpoint with Josie. Josie's no point because we know that with her, she's kind of going, well, we've got enough money to send me here as long as... Mm -hmm. As many times as we need to for, until I've got the thing. And I don't really have to work. And, and, you know, it's not that she's dumb either because she was in the Queen's class. She was able to apply herself to get there. Yeah, the but she's, she's just... She's coasting on minimum effort and, yes. she, and it shows in terms of her output. Um, and also she has no, there's no motivation. There is no ambition. Whereas with Anne. Well, there's, and, there's Frank Stokely. Well, that's the thing for her. <laughs> this is coming here to, to maybe catch a bow. Mm. Same with the others. Honestly, the others are, I mean, they, they, they're practical about it. Jane's like, if I, I do this, I get a job. I would teach for a few years. I get some finances and then I can go and, mm. and whether this whole idea of being a teacher means that you're are going to be a good mother because you can go and teach the kids at home. Oh. Yeah, a lot of that is is kind of there's a lot of layers t to this that right. could be explored. Ruby, we know has a few chapters ago and had already commented that Ruby was being a bit boy mad. Um, that she does seem to be like she's been spending a lot of time with Gilbert. She has, but also she's fixated on boys. Boys, 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 and thing. And again, look, if that's your jam, that's your jam. But in terms of this character, that's become her complete, like that's her personality. Mm. At least the way it's depicted is it's become who she is and that's all she is. Which Anne also points out, uh, in, 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 in between, uh, reading between the lines, she isn't just that person. And in fact, all these girls have a lot more to them as we saw when they were growing up and when they were children, there's a lot more to them. They're wise, they're funny, they, they have humor, there's warmth mm. in them. But it's almost like you can see that the pressures that they live in or the village that they live in, the condition, what they're conditioned to be. Yes, I've, I've often thought that the idea that, you know, we often talk about children being so full of potential, right? Mm. Um, but it does seem, and I, I can kind of recognize this in myself as I aged, all the possibilities, whether it's because... Uh, I well, f whether it's trauma or um, focusing my efforts on other things, mm -hmm. I'm more interested in because you know you, you can't you only have so much energy. You can't devote it to yeah. you know like ten pursuits. Some okay, I'm, I'm sure someone could. Some people can, but I have never been able to. Although I've never been able to focus down one path either, so I've been kind of in this limbo. But besides that, the idea that, yeah, as you grow, it's almost like the potential starts getting sanded off. The possibilities start getting sanded off. And it's not its not that you can't retain that. It's I think a lot of people lose that along the way, or they only discover it later on in life when maybe they've reached a point where they're able to unearth who they really want to be again. I think that's part of it. And I think also what contributes to that 
in part, and we're going back to the whole education systems thing, we are told to specialize. Mm -hmm. Society pushes us to specialize. In this particular setting of this particular book, girls and women have very predefined roles. In fact, men too. You need to be a provider. You need to go earn money and you need to be a community leader. That's like the message they give to men, Mm. right? And the message they give to women is, "Mm, it's okay if you want to earn a little bit, but your main job is being able to run a household. And pop out kids. Pop out kids, run a household, and uh, be part of, in terms of the the, um, church-based societies, we're talking also like running... um, a uh, charities and and right right fundraising yeah so essentially they are meant to be the social support network they are social security Mm. yep and this emphasis on how you behave and what a girl does and what a woman does what's a good wife that's why this entire book it's i find so dave and i have had a a one page one paragraph brush with with uh, jane austen and uh, Pride and Prejudice specifically, and just jumping books. You had commented that it didn't really resonate with you, and then I oh. read it. I read it in a way that was actually that changed your perception of it. And you're going, oh, it's actually it's criticizing. Like, yeah, Rue Ru yes. read it sarcastically, and suddenly the humor of it was um, unveiled to me. Whereas when I uh, approached it on my own uh, years before, I read it as like. Yeah, I read it straight. And it was just like, oh, it's this. To me, it was a silly story I'm not too interested in about a girl trying to get favor with a certain man. And, and, oh, will they, won't they? Oh, here's a problem. Basically a rom-com. I I saw it as a a Victorian rom-com. Yeah, and and in this case, we've got, there's layers to this book. There's layers to this story. There's a layer of a beautiful story of transformation. Yes? Hmm. We have also a person who is living outside the social norms and adapting to living within a context where you require so a special person because she's unusually vivacious and unusually imaginative and very bright. So this brightness that's coming into this place that is, it's not dark, but it's dull. She's come to this village that is essentially dull. But even when she's in that dull village, she learns to appreciate the very subtle uh, beauty that exists in that village, but also brings it out in people. She's bringing out mm-hmm. their, like Marilla, like we're seeing Mrs. Lind. We're seeing all these... Miss Barry. Miss Barry. Uh, there's there's transformation that's going on. Probably helped Diana a lot too, considering Probably. how we first heard about her as kind of an in, introvert bookworm whose mother wasn't very happy that she was reading. Yeah, but the and yes, and that she was very like inward. And, and I think... For Diana, she had, uh, if you look at a lot of the, the media depictions of it, the idea is that Diana had her whole life plotted out for her. And the same uh, really in the book. Because Mr. and Mrs. Barry, they tell her who she can hang out with, who she can't hang out with, right. what she can do, what she can't do. Like they're very, like she has a regimented life to some extent. Mm. She's semi-spoiled, but not that spoiled. Because really it's it's like indulge the child while she can and then she needs to go off and be married off and, and whatever. Yeah, even... Um... I can't remember if it was because of her grade level or just because of what they had planned for her, but it was pretty much, yeah, Diane's not going to Queens. Yeah, no, they said, no, you don't need to go to, you don't need to be a teacher. Like, they, they're they're wealthy-ish, so they don't... Well, Miss Barry is wealthy. Of, yes, Miss Barry is wealthy, and they're of the land, and... You know. Point is... I also see a lot of this as criticism of the rigid roles that exist in this society. I know that very vaguely know that Ellen Montgomery wasn't a huge fan of the very the strict rigidity rigidity of what women could do, what women couldn't do. She has other books where she explores this topic from, for example, someone who's a spinster age and who hasn't been married, and then it, that's the Blue Castle, and it has it has flaws. It has, like any story has flaws and whatever. But the idea, this this theme that comes back again and again is this, are we allowing ourselves to be who we could be? Like that same topic mm-hmm. of who we could be, that potential, do we let it be stifled by the society around us based on what they determine for us as opposed mm-hmm. to nurturing and encouraging and, and supporting our talents and abilities, refining them. That's what Anne's doing. 
and refining her abilities and talents and character traits. And that's, I think, her counter, her contrast that she's doing is that. Or even, you know, we've talked before about how Merle has been trying to mold her into someone who can survive in this world. Yeah. And the way I see how Anne has grown is, and I think it's partially because she's able to see the good in everything that happens, but, you know, she's learned how to move in this world, but she hasn't let it uh, stifle who she is. Yeah. Very, she, she, yeah. She's, she's taken it and she's molded it into part of who she is. Well, so, so it yeah. hasn't replaced it. It's just uh, added to it. Yes, yeah, she's taken what, what strength, and she's also quite, she still, she knows when she can't, can and can't express things without concept. She's very, yeah, it's quite interesting. Through all the mistakes she's made. Yes, but she, her attitude, I think, honestly, the thing that did it was her attitude towards mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right from the get-go, that was what helps her transform, whereas a lot of the others, it's permanent judgment and that's it, and so they're too afraid to make a mistake. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's uh, very true of everybody. Society. Yeah. So I think Anne's a great example for us to follow in the sense of it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from them. And sometimes you'll make a similar mistake, but it'll be different and you will learn from it. And be appreciative and be as true to yourself as you can be. Yeah. And also be aware that other people can't necessarily handle it and just go, okay, fine. Yeah. No, not my thing. It's okay. You know, I I still haven't fully learned it, but, you know, I've I've spent too much time and effort in the past trying to please everyone or to make everybody like me no okay so Mm. chapter 36 the glory and the dream on the morning when the final results of all the examinations were to be posted on the bulletin board at queen's anne and jane walked down the street together jane was smiling and happy examinations were over and she was comfortably sure that she had made a pass at least further considerations troubled jane not at all She had no soaring ambitions, and consequently was not affected with the unrest attendant thereon. For we pay a price for everything we get or take in this world, and although ambitions are well worth having, they are not to be cheaply won, but exact their dues of work and self-denial, anxiety and discouragement. That's a really good line. Anne was pale and quiet. In ten more minutes she would know who had won the medal and who the Avery. Beyond those ten minutes, there did not seem just then to be anything worth being called time. (laughs) That sense of time was great. Of course you'll win one of them anyhow, said Jane, who couldn't understand how the faculty could be so unfair as to order it otherwise. I have not hope of the Avery, said Anne. Everybody says Emily Clay will win it, and I'm not going to march up to that bulletin board and look at it before everybody. I haven't the moral courage. I'm going straight to the girls' dressing room. You must read the announcement and then come and tell me, Jane, and I implore you in the name of our old friendship to do it as quickly as possible. Rip off that band-aid. So, if I have failed, just say so without trying to break it gently, and whatever you do, don't sympathize with me. Promise me this, Jane. Jane promised solemnly, but as it happened, there was no necessity for such a promise. When they went up the entrance steps of Queen's, they found the hall full of boys who were carrying Gilbert Blythe on their shoulders and yelling at the top of their voices, Hurrah for Blythe, medalist! (laughs) For a moment, Anne felt one sickening pang of defeat and disappointment. So, she had failed and Gilbert had won. Well, Matthew would be sorry. He had been so sure she would win. And then somebody called out. Three cheers for Miss Shirley, winner of the Avery. Yay! Oh, Anne, gasped Jane as they fled to the girls' dressing room amid hearty cheers. Oh, Anne, I'm so proud. Isn't it splendid? And then the girls were around them, and Anne was the centre of a laughing, congratulating group. Her shoulders were thumped and her hands shaken vigorously. She was pushed and pulled and hugged, and amongst it all, she managed to whisper to Jane... Oh, won't Matthew and Marilla be pleased? I must write the news home right away. Commencement was the next important happening. The exercises were held in the big assembly hall of the academy. Addresses were given, essays read, songs sung, the public award of diplomas, prizes and medals made. Matthew and Marilla were there, with eyes and ears for only one student on the platform. A tall girl in pale green, with faintly flushed cheeks and starry eyes, who read the best essay and was pointed out and whispered about as the Avery winner. 
Reckon you're glad we kept her, Marilla? <laughs> whispered Matthew. Now you go <laughs> Oh, dear. Reckon you're glad we kept her, Marilla? Whispered Matthew, speaking for the first time since he had entered the hall when Anne had finished her essay. It's not for the first time I've been glad, retorted Marilla. You do like to rub things in, Matthew Cuthbert. (laughs) Miss Barry, who was sitting behind them, leaned forward and poked Marilla in the back with her parasol. Aren't you proud of that, Anne girl? I am, she said. (laughs) Marilla with her inability to express emotion. Anne went home to Avonlea with Matthew and Marilla that evening. She had not been home since April, and she felt that she could not wait another day. The apple blossoms were out, and the world was fresh and young. Diana was at Green Gables to meet her, in her own white room where Marilla had set a flowering house rose on the window sill. Anne looked about her and drew a long breath of happiness. Oh, Diana, it's so good to be back again. It's so good to see those pointed firs coming out against the pink sky and that white orchard and the old snow queen. Isn't the breath of mint delicious? And that tea rose... Why, it's a song and a hope and a prayer all in one, and it's good to see you again, Diana. I thought you liked that Stella Maynard better than me, said Diana reproachfully. Josie Pye told me you did. Josie said you were infatuated with her. Anne laughed and pelted Diana with the faded June lilies of her bouquet. Stella Maynard is the dearest girl in the world except one, and you are that one, Diana, she said. I love you more than ever, and I've so many things to tell you, but just now I feel as if it were joy enough to sit here and look at you. I'm tired, I think. Tired of being studious and ambitious. I mean to spend at least two hours tomorrow lying out in the orchard grass thinking of absolutely nothing. You've done splendidly, Anne. I suppose you won't be teaching now you've won the Avery. No, I'm going to Redmond in September. Doesn't it seem wonderful? I'll have a brand new stock of ambition laid in by that time after three glorious golden months of vacation. Jane and Ruby are going to teach. Isn't it splendid to think that we all got through, even to Moody Spurgeon and Josie Pye? Look at Anne being nice. I just... just, (laughs) The Newbridge trustees have offered Jane their school already, said Diana. Gilbert Blythe is going to teach too. He has to. His father can't afford to send him to college next year after all so he means to earn his own way through. I expect he'll get the school here if Miss Ames decides to leave. Anne felt a queer little sensation of dismayed surprise. She had not known this. She had expected that Gilbert would be going to Redmond also. What would she do without their inspiring rivalry? Would not work, even at a co-educational college with a real degree in prospect, be rather flat without her friend the enemy? (laughs) I like that turn of phrase. Yeah, it's great. The next morning at breakfast, it suddenly struck Anne that Matthew was not looking well. Surely he was much greyer than he had been the year before. Marilla, she said hesitatingly when he had gone out, is Matthew quite well? No, he isn't, said Marilla in a troubled tone. He's had some real bad spells with his heart this spring, and he won't spare himself a mite. I've been real worried about him. But he's some better a while back, and we've got a good hired man, and I'm hoping he'll kind of rest and pick up. Maybe he will now you're home. You always cheer him up. Anne leaned across the table and took Marilla's face in her hands. You are not looking as well yourself as I'd like to see you, Marilla. You look tired. I'm afraid you've been working too hard. You must take a rest now that I'm home. I'm just going to take this one day off to visit all the dear old spots and hunt up my old dreams and then it will be your turn to be lazy while I do the work. Marilla smiled affectionately at her girl. It's not the work, it's my head. I've got a pain so often now behind my eyes. Dr. Spencer's been fussing with glasses, but they don't do me any good. There's a distinguished oculist coming to the island the last of June, and the doctor says I must see him. I guess I'll have to. I can't read or sew with any comfort now. Well, Anne, you've done real well at Queen's, I must say. To take first-class license in one year and win the Avery Scholarship? Well, well. Mrs. Lynde says pride goes before a fall, and she doesn't believe in the higher education of women at all. She says it unfits them for women's true sphere. I don't believe a word of it. 
Speaking of Rachel, reminds me, did you hear anything about the Abbey Banks lately, Anne? I heard it was shaky, answered Anne. Why? That is what Rachel said. She was up here one day last week and said there was some talk about it. Matthew felt real worried. All we have saved is in that bank, every penny. I wanted Matthew to put it in the savings bank in the first place, but old Mr. Abbey was a great friend of father's, and he'd always banked with him. Matthew said any bank with him at the head of it was good enough for anybody. I think he has only been its nominal head for many years, said Anne. He is a very old man. His nephews are really at the head of the institution. Well, when Rachel told us that, I wanted Matthew to draw our money right out, and he said he'd think of it. But Mr. Russell told him yesterday that the bank was all right. Anne had her good day in the companionship of the outdoor world. She never forgot that day. It was so bright and golden and fair, so free from shadow and so lavish of blossom. Anne spent some of its rich hours in the orchard. She went to the Dryad's Bubble in Willowmere and Violet Vale. She called at the manse and had a satisfying talk with Mrs. Allen. And finally in the evening she went with Matthew for the cows through Lover's Lane to the back pasture. The woods were all gloried through with sunset and the warm splendour of it streamed down the hill gaps in the west. Matthew walked slowly with bent head. Anne, tall and erect, suited her springing step to his. You've been working too hard today, Matthew, she said reproachfully. Why won't you take things easier? Well now, I can't seem to, said Matthew, as he opened the yard gate to let the cows through. It's only that I'm getting old, Anne, and I keep forgetting it. Well, well, I've always worked pretty hard, and I'd rather drop in harness. If I'd been the boy you'd sent for, said Anne wistfully, I'd be able to help you so much now and spare you in a hundred ways. I could find it in my heart to wish I had been just for that. Oh. Well now, I'd rather have you than a dozen boys, Anne, said Matthew, patting her hand. Just mind you that, rather than a dozen boys. Well now, I guess it wasn't a boy that took the Avery scholarship, was it? It was a girl. My girl, my girl that I am proud of. He smiled his shy smile at her as he went into the yard. Anne took the memory of it with her when she went to her room that night and sat for a long while at her open window, thinking of the past and dreaming of the future. Outside, the Snow Queen was mistily white in the moonshine. The frogs were singing in the march beyond Orchard Slope. Anne always remembered the silvery, peaceful beauty and fragrant calm of that night. It was the last night before sorrow touched her life, and no life is ever quite the same again when once that cold, sanctifying touch has been laid upon it. Oh, it's so sad. Sorry. I think, yeah. We're, we're only 30 minutes in. You can do this. Now, now I just want to say, like, you've mentioned before the end of the book is quite emotional. And I've mentioned before, like Marilla having problems with her headaches and Matthew having the heart thing, that I was worried one of them might not make it read the book but the funny thing is that last chapter it could be either it could be both they could lose their money uh yeah you can you can see she's built up the tension which is why almost every time i read the next chapter i cry which we'll see what happens this time there is no shame in crying i know it's just it's one of those ones that yes so the beauty of this like this that very close and warm relationship she has with both marilla and matthew that really, really, she, I mean, Marilla could admit to her that she was so proud of her mm. quite openly and said, I think what Rachel Lind is saying is nonsense about higher education. I think you deserve it. And I think you should do it, mm. which Marilla could have said, okay, you, you've got your teacher's license. That's enough. You can get a job. You'll be fine. But now she's saying, no, no, go for it. Go for those ambitions. I want you to, you will be, you, you earned it. Well, and I think the mark of, um, uh, let me try and word this the right way. I think perhaps the mark of a good parent or guardian is that as long as you can see that they go higher, encourage them to do it. Mm, mm, mm. Leave the reality and maybe now is time a good time to change past. Leave that for when it doesn't seem they can go much further or they're struggling or, you know. Yeah, it's it's just she's encouraging. She's supportive. And getting them to actually 
I love how it's come back to that conversation at the beginning of the fact that this is that Anne wasn't the boy. You're not a boy. Like kind of, it's come back to that conversation with Matthew as well. Like, well, that was beautiful. She's like, you know, if I was a boy, uh, you would have to do so little now, and it would be better for you. So, for that reason alone, I kind of wish I was. And then he's like, nonsense. You're my girl. I'm like, so glad you're here. Yeah, it's like, oh, oh. okay. Especially because you know. As, as much as Verla has trouble expressing herself, Matthew's not really great at it either. No, no. And despite that, she's brought that out in them where they they can. And that's really... Uh. Okay. So, stealing yourself? Yes. So, so, the title of this chapter... Chapter 37, The Reaper Whose Name is Death. I mean... This is going to be a fun chapter. As, well, no, look, there's a there's a beauty and a sadness in yeah. this. But at the end of the last chapter, we said Anne would remember that day before mm. vividly. I also like the the um, the poetry of uh, no one's life is ever the same. Once, like the what was it? The uh, cold, sanctifying touch. Yes, of sorrow. Of sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. The um, and you know, having lost my father. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think when you lose a good friend or a family member, or anyone you care about has died, because, you know, I, f- I still feel the touch of my dog that died. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it changes you. Mm, it does, it does, definitely. So, the reaper whose name is Death. Matthew, Matthew, what is the matter? Matthew, are you sick? It was Marilla who spoke, alarm in every jerky word. Anne came through the hall, her hands full of white narcissus. It was long before Anne could love the sight or odour of white narcissus again. In time to hear her and to see Matthew standing in the porch doorway, a folded paper in his hand, and his face strangely drawn and grey. Anne dropped her flowers and sprang across the kitchen to him at the very same moment as Marilla. They were both too late. Before they could reach him, Matthew had fallen across the threshold. He's fainted, gasped Marilla. Anne, run for Martin. Quick, quick, he's at the barn. Martin, the hired man who had just driven home from the post office, started at once for the doctor, calling at Orchard Slope on his way to send Mr. and Mrs. Barry over. Mrs. Lynde, who was there on an errand, came too. They found Anne and Marilla distractedly trying to restore Matthew to consciousness. Mrs. Lynde pushed them gently aside, tried his pulse, and then laid her ear over his heart. She looked at their anxious faces sorrowfully, and the tears came into her eyes. Oh, Marilla, she said gravely, I don't think we can do anything for him. Mrs. Lynde, you don't think, you can't think Matthew is, is. Anne couldn't say the dreadful word. She turned sick and pallid. Child, yes, I'm afraid of it. Look at his face. When you've seen that look as often as I have, you'll know what it means. Anne looked at the still face, and there beheld the seal of the great presence. When the doctor came, he said that death had been instantaneous and probably painless, caused in all likelihood by some sudden shock. The secret of the shock was discovered to be in the paper Matthew had held, and which Martin had brought from the office that morning. It contained an account of the failure of Abbey Bank. The news spread quickly through Avonlea, and all day friends and neighbours thronged Green Gables and came and went on errands of kindness for the dead and living. For the first time, shy, quiet Matthew Cuthbert was a person of central importance. The white majesty of death had fallen on him and set him apart as one crowned. When the calm night came softly down over Green Gables, the old house was hushed and tranquil. In the parlour lay Matthew Cuthbert in his coffin, his long grey hair framing his placid face, on which there was a little kindly smile, as if he slept, dreaming pleasant dreams. There were flowers about him, sweet old-fashioned flowers, which his mother had planted in the homestead garden in her bridal days, and for which Matthew had always had a secret, wordless love. Anne had gathered them and brought them to him, her anguished, tearless eyes burning in her white face. It was the last thing she could do for him. The Barrys and Mrs. Lynde stayed with them that night. Diana, going to the east gable where Anne was standing at her window, said gently, 
Anne, dear, would you like to have me sleep with you tonight? Thank you, Diana, Anne looked earnestly into her friend's face. I think you won't misunderstand me when I say I want to be alone. I'm not afraid. I haven't been alone one minute since it happened, and I want to be. I want to be quite silent and quiet and try to realize it. I can't realize it. Half the time it seems to me that Matthew can't be dead, and the other half, it seems, as if he must have been dead for a long time, and I've had this horrible dull ache ever since. Diana did not quite understand. Marilla's impassioned grief, breaking all the bounds of natural reserve and lifelong habit in its stormy rush, she could comprehend better than Anne's tearless agony. But she went away kindly, leaving Anne alone to keep her first vigil with sorrow. Anne hoped that the tears would come in solitude. It seemed to her a terrible thing that she could not shed a tear for Matthew, whom she had loved so much, and who had been so kind to her. Matthew, who had walked with her last evening at sunset, and was now lying in that dim room below, with that awful peace on his brow. But no tears came at first, even when she knelt by her window in the darkness and prayed, looking up to the stars beyond the hills. No tears, only the same horrible, dull ache of misery that kept on aching until she fell asleep, worn out with the day's pain and excitement. In the night she awakened with the stillness and the darkness about her, and the recollection of the day came over her like a wave of sorrow. She could see Matthew's face smiling at her, as he had smiled when they had parted at the gate that last evening. She could hear his voice saying, My girl, my girl that I am proud of. Then the tears came, and Anne wept her heart out. Marilla heard her and crept in to comfort her. There, there, don't cry so, dearie. It can't bring him back. It isn't right to cry so. I knew that today, but I couldn't help it then. He'd always been such a good, kind brother to me. But God knows best. Oh, just let me cry, Marilla, sobbed Anne. The tears don't hurt me like that ache did. Stay here for a little while with me and keep your arm around me, so? I couldn't have Diana say, she's good and kind and sweet. But it's not her sorrow. She's outside of it, and she couldn't come close enough to my heart to help me. It's our sorrow, yours and mine. Oh, Marilla, what will we do without him? We've got each other, Anne, and I don't know what I'd do if you weren't here, if you had never come. Oh, Anne, I know I've been kind of strict and harsh with you, maybe, but you mustn't think I didn't love you as well as Matthew did for all that. I want to tell you now when I can. It's never been easy for me to say things out of my heart, but at times like this it is easier. I love you as dear as if you were my own flesh and blood, and you've been my joy and comfort ever since you came to Green Gables. Two days afterwards they carried Matthew Cuthbert over his homestead threshold and away from the fields he had tilled and the orchards he had loved, and the trees he had planted. And then Avonlea settled back into its usual placidity, and even at Green Gables affairs slipped into their old groove, and work was done and duties fulfilled with regularity as before, although always with the aching sense of loss in all familiar things. Anne, new to grief, thought it almost sad that it could be so, that they could go on in the old way without Matthew. She felt something like shame and remorse when she discovered that the sunrises behind the firs and the pale pink buds opening in the garden gave her the old inrush of gladness when she saw them, that Diana's visits were pleasant to her, and that Diana's merry words and ways moved her to laughter and smiles, that, in brief, the beautiful world of blossom and love and friendship had lost none of its power to please her fancy and thrill her heart that life still called to her with many insistent voices. It seems like disloyalty to Matthew somehow, to find pleasure in these things now that he is gone, she said wistfully to Mrs. Allen one evening, when they were together in the man's garden. I miss him so much, all the time, and yet, Mrs. Allen, the world and life seem very beautiful and interesting to me for all. Today Diana said something funny and I found myself laughing, I thought, when it happened, I could never laugh again, and it somehow seems as if I oughtn't to. 
When Matthew was here, he liked to hear you laugh, and he liked to know that you found pleasure in the pleasant things around you, said Mrs. Allen gently. He is just away now, and he likes to know it just the same. I am sure we should not shut out our hearts against the healing influences that nature offers us. But I can understand your feeling. I think we all experience the same thing. We resent the thought that anything can please us when someone we love is no longer here to share the pleasure with us, and we almost feel as if we were unfaithful to our sorrow when we find our interest in life returning to us. I was down to the graveyard to plant a rose bush on Matthew's grave this afternoon, said Anne dreamily. I took a slip of the little white Scotch rose bush his mother had brought out from Scotland long ago. Matthew always liked those roses the best. They were so small and sweet on their thorny stems. It made me feel glad that I could plant it by his grave, as if I were doing something that must please him in taking it there to be near him. I hope he has roses like them in heaven. Perhaps the souls of all those little white roses that he has loved so many summers were all there to meet him. I must go home now. Marilla is all alone and she gets lonely at twilight. She will be lonelier still, I fear, when you go away to college, said Mrs. Allen. Mm. Anne did not reply. She said good night and went slowly back to Green Gables. Marilla was sitting on the front doorsteps and Anne sat down beside her. The door was open behind them, held back by a big pink conch shell with hints of sea sunsets in its smooth inner convolutions. Anne gathered some sprays of pale yellow honeysuckle and put them in her hair. She liked the delicious hint of fragrance as some aerial benediction above her every time she moved. Dr. Spencer was here while you were away, Marilla said. He said that the specialist will be here in town tomorrow, and he insists that I must go in and have my eyes examined. I suppose I'd better go and have it over. I'll be more than thankful if the man can give me the right kind of glasses to suit my eyes. You won't mind staying here alone while I'm away, will you? Martin will have to drive me in, and there's ironing and baking to do. I shall be all right. Diana will come over for company for me. I shall attend to the ironing and baking beautifully. You needn't fear that I starch the handkerchiefs or flavor the cake with liniment. Marilla laughed. What a girl you were for making mistakes in them days, Anne. You were always getting into scrapes. I did used to think you were possessed. <laughs> do you mind the time you dyed your hair? Yes, indeed, I shall never forget it, smiled Anne, touching the heavy braid of hair that was wound about her shapely head. I laugh a little now sometimes when I think of what a worry my hair used to be to me. But I don't laugh much, because it was a very real trouble then. I did suffer terribly over my hair and my freckles. My freckles are really gone, and people are nice enough to tell me my hair is auburn now. All but Josie Pye. <laughs> she informed me yesterday that she really thought it was redder than ever, or at least my black dress made it look redder, and she asked me if people who had red hair ever got used to having it. Marilla, I've almost decided to give up trying to like Josie Pye. I have made what I would have once called a heroic effort to like her, but Josie Pye won't be liked. Josie is a pie said Marilla sharply, so she can't help being disagreeable. I suppose people of that kind serve some useful purpose in society, but I must say I don't know what it is any more than I know the use of thistles. Is Josie going to teach? No, she's going back to Queen's next year, so are Moody Spurgeon and Charlie Sloan. Jane and Ruby are going to teach, and they have both got schools, Jane at Newbridge and Ruby at some place up west. Gilbert Blythe is going to teach too, isn't he? Yes, briefly. What a nice-looking fellow he is, said Marilla absently. I saw him at church last Sunday, and he seems so tall and manly. He looks a lot like his father did at the same age. John Bly was a nice boy. We used to be really good friends, he and I. People called him my beau. Anne looked up with swift interest. Oh, Marilla, and what happened? Why didn't you... We had a quarrel. I wouldn't forgive him when he asked me to. I meant to, after a while, but I was sulky and angry, and I wanted to punish him first. He never came back. The Blythes were all mighty independent, but I always felt rather sorry. I've always kind of wished I'd forgiven him when I had the chance. So you've had a bit of romance in your life too, said Anne softly. Yes, I suppose you might call it that. You wouldn't think so to look at me, would you? 
But you can never tell about people from their outsides. Everybody has forgotten about me and John. I'd forgotten myself. But it all came back to me when I saw Gilbert last Sunday. Oh, wow. The, it's that, a, that was a ride. Yeah, it's it's a hard chapter for me. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, but, but you know, the opening up of Marilla yeah. is... Um, I guess if there was any positive to come out there's of a f- it. There's a few silver linings in the sense. I mean, not that Matthew's death is... Look, Matthew wasn't well. We haven't addressed the fact that they have... That yeah, they've lost their, their savings. savings. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll see how that goes. I mean, and that was what gave him the heart attack. Yeah. The, the fatal heart attack, because it sounded like he has had them before, but... He's had, yeah, troubles before. So, yes, we've got Marilla, who's a lot more open. I, I did like um, two things about their conversation right mm. at the end on the porch. Well, actually, a lot of it. They're there for each other. I mean, that's beautiful. Mm. I, I really uh, enjoyed Marilla um, saying, well, Josie is a pie. And <laughs> and if they ever have a use, I've never known what it was. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> sure of, she does, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, kind of, you know, that, that whenever Marilla does allow herself to be open around Anne, it, it's always kind of amusing and edifying. And I think Anne, like, oh, so you, you kind of think what I think. You've just never told anybody. It, it is very much, it's not proper to say, but you know what? Their camaraderie is coming out more. The, 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 she's seeing Anne more as someone who is not her peer. She's still her care. Well, you know, when you when you lose a family member, you kind that the remaining ones kind of band together a little more. They can, they can, yes. In, but but I, I loved right at the end as well the talk about how um, John Blythe used to have a thing for Marilla, and it just turned out that it was they had a quarrel. Marilla always meant to forgive her, but forgive him. Sorry, never did. And then because he's a Blythe, he went out and had his own family and did his own thing, and everyone forgot about it. And, and I just wanted to yell, see the parallels, Anne, see the parallels, I forgive think, him, forgive him. I think to some extent that might be part of what's being said here. Um, I think we don't underestimate Marilla's ability to read through things. True, yeah. true. Um, she, she's no dummy. No, but she's also, I mean, she's not a manipulator. No. But she also knows how not to talk about certain topics. And as far as everyone is concerned, they figure they think Anne is still just in that mode of whereas they don't realize that she actually sees him as someone who's a friend, the friend, the enemy. So it's not really my an friend, enemy. the enemy. Yeah, I it's love not really that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, oh, I, man. Yeah, just, that was. Uh... It's a very. It's given the topic. I think they talk about the way they address the death of someone who is loved, um, but also someone who was, you know, fairly quiet in the in, in their village and not super involved in the like. They mm. but they knew him. He, he yeah. left a, a mark. And even um, I like that idea of you know, because the same thing happened when my father passed. Like everyone was kind of there, and you know, mm. uh, making sure we were okay and. That first night was weird. But yeah, how uh, Diana asked Anne if she wanted company in the room. And she was like, I, I want to be alone with my sorrow. But she couldn't cry even though she wanted to. It was just this horrible ache. And then in the middle of the night, she does cry. And that brings Marilla in. And she goes, yeah, I, I'd like you to be here. I think, you know, we're on the inside. I can handle you being here and helping me through this. But Diana's... It's not It's not her sorrow. Yeah. Like, it's not the same thing. Uh, yeah, I relate far too hard to, to, to that dull ache. Like, I, it's just, yeah, there's, there's hmm. well, like, to be honest, uh, the death of my father, I have, I don't feel I've actually even started to grieve that yet. It's been about five years now and it's, it, it, it's, it's almost a fear at this point. It's like, when is that actually finally going to hit me? It probably, there, there's a few things that probably are important. I think that, hmm. I like to say these things, but I also believe them. I don't think there is an expiry on grief. I think grief mm-hmm. catches us in different ways. Well, what I said before the chapter started about that, um, that feeling how sorrow changes you. Even though I have not feel, I feel I have not grieved, and maybe that's also an insecurity. Like I've seen how it affected my mother and my sister, and yeah. it hit them hard. 
and here I am, you know, not really feeling that and then feeling something's wrong with me for not feeling that. Well, I think that's also where you had, for example, Diana was saying, I understand the grief. So Diana's describing, we're hearing her thoughts and this idea that she understands the grief that Marilla has, which is that completely counter to her character, sudden burst and outcome the emotions. There you go. The quiet, still grief where they're not, not able to process so and kind of going it feels like he's not i can't reconcile reality so this idea of you know that's still kind of true to me i yeah. i think of my dad it's like he's gone but that doesn't seem right yeah so there's that it feel i know that intellectually i know that he is passed away but at the same time it doesn't feel like he is passed away because yeah. i feel like he should like he's still here so like he's, he's just gonna walk through the door um that's a thing that can happen and it's i don't know the technical terms i don't i just know that the there is no one particular way to grieve there is there are patterns that we see more frequently but it's just person to person the key thing is um a sense of loss and how that affects us it's going to be so different from 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 person to person mm, that's true yeah. um and there there is yeah. no right way to agree no there isn't i mean the, the, the there's one wrong way which is when you start being harmful to those around you then that's a wrong way or trying to fight it i guess well no you can't tell a person not to fight it if they're not comfortable with it and they don't know how to No, not it. telling someone but trying to fight it yourself it's, it's not recommended to fight your grieving process no mm. But that's probably a topic for someone with qualifications in the realm of psychology and counseling to go into. Um, I just know that it's generally when we don't process or deal with emotions, and it doesn't yes. doesn't mean that you need to act on them. This is coming from DBT more than anything else, so dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, sorry, this idea of not processing processing your emotions doesn't mean that you need to act on them it doesn't mean that you you can even just reflect on them go oh i feel really uncomfortable right now why it is important to feel them if nothing else well it's important to feel them but to also acknowledge and recognize when you're feeling something sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell you're going i don't know why i'm so angry today and you pause you reflect oh okay actually i'm i'm angry because i i'm feeling frustrated that i didn't get to like someone um has built up a barrier between me and a goal that I wanted to achieve. And then... I've been on Twitter too much. (laughs) I've been on Twitter too much is a really good example of why do you get angry? But you think I'm getting frustrated. And then you go, well, why am I getting frustrated? And to actually process it. it, it it, It's a whole... I personally am a fan of looking at at the whole dialect, dialectical behavioral approach because it worked really well. I actually just did it. Last night, there was a session right um but this idea of looking at emotions do my emotions and my the impulse i have how to act is it are they appropriate for the scenario to fact check to anyway look at marshall in a hand's work if you're mm. wanting more into that but it's really good like I, I think that she has for anne so anne is very upset but she doesn't know how to react she gets the I like the fact that she goes and talks to someone that she feels that she can talk to this about, mm. um, which is, and laughing because Matthew loved that she, when she was happy and she was seeking pleasure, like she found pleasure in, in life and pleasant things. And seeing living for her own sake is important, but also that when she's living, she's continuing those memories. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those, she needed that. That it's okay. You're allowed to laugh. You're allowed to be happy. Well, you know how there's that um, that saying that living well is the best revenge. Yeah, and I don't think it's a revenge. I think it's just living well is a, is the best legacy. Well, I was going to say, I uh, yeah. thinking about Anne's situation and how she feels that being who she is might be disrespectful to Matthew being dead, and that Miss Allen says, "Well, he loved you." being you that idea that living well is an honoring his memory yeah and i think it's it's even not necessarily that it's disrespect it's it's she feels conflicted about it she's conflicted about the idea that there can be joy when there has been sorrow yes and as was described in the preceding chapter once your life has been touched by sorrow yeah it, it changes and so if it's changing like that 
the the way it's changed she's she's questioning she's actually reviewing can am i allowed to feel joy and so you start to question yourself so i guess that unshakable belief in mm. just finding joy and pleasure and things has been a bit shaken because yeah now she's con- been confronted by a different kind of loss than she's ever been exposed to well and a little deeper it could be you know because that's very much at the core of who she is that reverence for nature mm. and you know now that that's shaken a little bit it might be like an existential thing like this is who i am i found joy in these things but oh that doesn't feel right with matthew being dead am i not right now yeah. that matthew's dead yeah so it's a it's a bit of a it's late there's layers to this as as um uh, as we discussed at the beginning of today's uh, podcast the layers are very much the way that mrs montgomery rats Hmm. Yes. Uh, well, I think you did. Have, you got through that very well. Yes, I did not cry. I choked up a little bit, but I did not cry. I think. I think you know, taking it slow. The idea that when you're reading, you're kind of focusing on getting the words out. Yes, that helps. That helps. <laughs> so, um, do you do you foresee next episode actually being our final episode, or is there a little more? No, the next one is the final episode, so our next chapter is... You mean we just lost Matthew and we're going to lose Anne too? We're going to lose this book of Anne of Green Gables, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you can, folks, you can vote. Either we just continue in the entire Anne of Green Gables, God. Even if we do that, we're doing other books in between. We're doing other books in between, yes. Um, because well, you know, earlier you talked about um, how I was reading uh, Pride and Prejudice wrong. I would not be um, adverse to visiting some Jane Austen in the future yes, with good. you reading and bringing out the um, snark, the snark of it. I think we can we can probably also uh, get another friend of ours to volunteer to help with the snark. Oh my goodness, that would be so heavily snarky, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good thing. But. Yes. We have a few oh. friends who are really talented at the snark. Um, Actually, yeah, we know more than one. Yes, we have a few friends. Is that are, a sad indictment of... Uh... <laughs> generation Zenial <laughs> and a couple of Generation X in that. Just, I'll forget it. Whatever. Whatever the Pew Research Center says between the, you know, the... Well, Gen X is stereotypically snark. No, they're stereotypically apathetic. Yes, and then the snark comes into the minute. So, but yes, we can do that. So, so next, next is it just one chapter? This next uh, next episode is one chapter, which is chapter thirty-eight, the bend in the road. Wow! So, um, like our final episode in nineteen eighty-four, what will likely happen is we'll read the chapter, we'll reflect on it like we normally do, and then we'll take time to reflect more largely on the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think we've kind of been doing a lot of that as we go along. Well, that's yes. the nature of the podcast. Is, but, you know, is. at the end of 1984, I remember you went into the wiki. and Yes, we can do some digging. Um, w- there was an appendix during that book, which, you know, I don't like reading appendixes. And that was one reason we didn't. But at the end of uh, Rue's version of Anna Green Gables, there's actually a segment called How to Form a Book Club. Which seems appropriate, given the fact that they had the... Riding the story club, club. The story yeah. club, yeah. Um, so what we will do is next, next week, yes, we have chapter 38. If folks would like the continuation of the Anne of Green Gables series, you can always message us that as an idea or a book suggestion, but we will be interrupting with some other books first. Hmm. I, I've got, I think, my next four pretty much locked down. We do interchange especially because I decided to start this whole thing off with 1984. If we went right into my next pick, Rue might have quit then and then. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a limit to the amount of dystopian fiction that I can handle in one lot. And I'm so glad she chose this because, yeah, it's, it's been an absolute some, delight. But until next week, the music at the top of our podcast was Avonlea by Hagrid Hardy. The music at the end is I'm the Sign by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo, R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. We have a Twitter and a Facebook page for the podcast. That's S-M-B-S-L-T podcast. And if you would like to email us, it's S-M-B-S-L-T podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to leave reviews, if you'd like to get in contact with us for any reason, please do so. And uh, we hope you've been enjoying this journey through Avonlea. Yes. So until next time, folks, 
I hope you're enjoying your reading. Bye. Thank you.